There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to our podcast, Life After the Letters. I'm Amelie. And I'm Suba. We're friends that met whilst working our first shifts as junior doctors. And we're here to talk about the stories and challenges that we face every day. Today we're welcoming Mr. David Salu to the podcast. He is a surgeon and the author of the autobiographical book, Did He Save Lives? where he chronicles his medical career and the tragic circumstances of a death that resulted in him being convicted of manslaughter and serving 15 months in prison. He came from humble beginnings in Sierra Leone and then completed his medical education in Manchester. He spent the majority of his career working first as a senior lecturer in surgery at the University of London at Hammersmith Hospital and then as an NHS consultant colorectal surgeon in West London. His life was irrevocably changed following the death of a patient in a private hospital in Harrow, which ultimately resulted in a manslaughter conviction. After serving his time in prison, Mr. Selly was released and he was granted an appeal. His conviction was overturned and he has since been exonerated of blame and restored to the medical register. Without further ado, here is a man himself and will be talking on medical error and blame culture. Hi, Mr. Sally. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. I'm really uh, excited to be here and to talk about this very important subject. Brilliant. Yeah. And you know what's interesting? I think this season particularly, we've had so many guests who have been so candid about their story. And I don't think we've really ever had that really in medicine over the past couple of years. So thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Mm, absolutely. So I recently finished reading your book, which we'll come to talk about throughout the podcast. Okay. Um, it was a fantastic read. Um, you were so open about all of your experiences and like just the struggles of of everything that had happened and it's it, honestly I feel like it's really a an honor to meet you like just after reading everything <laughs> and even whilst I was reading it talking to colleagues at work so many people had heard of your story are so sympathetic and um I think for everyone this is going to be like a fantastic episode <laughs> me and Suba like fangirling and so excited yeah. over here <laughs> <laughs> well it's, it's been a big story as I'm sure you know mm. and you've said uh, it's a story that gripped medicine mm. and has huge implications on the way we mm. practice medicine, as we're going to talk about uh, in this podcast. Mm, absolutely. So, Mr. Selu, do you mind just recapping? Actually, let's start from the beginning, if that's okay. So you w- grew up in Sierra Leone? Or yes, okay. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that and how you came into coming into medicine in the first place. Well, I was born in Sierra Leone, which, as you know, is in West Africa. Yes, yes. Uh, as you say, humble beginnings. I went to school purely by chance because I managed to read and write mm. even before I was able to go to school. It was that ability that got me into school. 
I didn't know when I was born. Uh, but when I got to school, mm-hmm. my headmaster allocated a date of birth based purely on the ability <laughs> to read. Uh, but uh, it was a difficult struggle there. But I managed. I did well. And I went to secondary school. I got an international scholarship uh, to come to uh, to come to the United Kingdom. So okay. I, that's how I ended up in the UK. And were you in Manchester initially, or were you somewhere else? No, I went. I went to Manchester. I spent just a short amount of time in London. Mm-hmm. And I tell you the story about <laughs> when I first arrived in London. I love this I story. <laughs> I was in a British Council hostel. The British Council were very uh, accommodating, mm-hmm. as it were. And when I had my briefing in Freetown before I came, they said, when you get to London, just look out for our reception committees. And somebody very kindly uh, put us in a van, took us to this hostel uh, in Knightsbridge on a street street called Hans Crescent. It's a nice place to be in a hostel, isn't it? Yes, it was. (laughs) Yes, yes. Anyway, in the morning, I woke up, wanted to brush my teeth, comb my hair. And I realised that I'd left my toothbrush, my toothpaste and my comb back Also, I relate to that because that's me when I travel. As all my friends know, literally, don't have any of the essentials. <laughs> yeah, so I got out of um, Hans Crescent and walked onto this huge road. I'd never seen anything like it before. Into a shop the like of which I'd never seen before. Bright lights and <laughs> lots of merchandise and so on. I walked in and I asked this man... I said, I'm from Sierra Leone. This is my first time in London. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to buy a comb, a toothbrush, and some toothpaste. (laughs) He looked at me very sympathetically, and he said, "Uh, Sir, I think the shop you want is (laughs) not us. Walk out through that door, turn left, walk over Hans Road, and it's on your left. You can't miss it. You know, the old British way of saying (laughs) Anyway, it was much later when I arrived in Manchester and during Freshers' Week Mm. when we were talking about our experiences that I told them about my encounter. And the shop was called Harrods. (laughs) So you can imagine imagine the reception I got. Actually comedy. Talking talking about my my first encounters in London. But that was an exciting time. I imagine also on the flip side, that shop assistant being like, oh, the most hilarious he guy walked in today. Could, <laughs> couldn't stop his laugh. But yeah. he, he was very polite. Was very polite yes. mm. And also, you could have just been spending so much money if you did that in Harrods. Yes, yeah. it's not a good place to buy a car, No. Right? So you bumped no, into the right person, yeah, I feel, yeah. on that first yeah, day. Yeah. Mm. So you both went to Manchester. So I feel like we need to touch on that. Because <laughs> you're both Manchester medics, aren't oh, you? Right, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely love that city. So, yeah. Amelie always raves about Manchester. <laughs> yes, great always. place. I mean, the things I liked about Manchester were really two. First, the first time I saw snow was in uh, Manchester. Oh. I, you know, coming from a hot country, snow was not of course. something I'd been used to. But I also liked going to Manchester United and George Best, of course. Was <laughs> I knew there was going to be a football yeah, story. There yeah, football story there has there. to be. And I, the first time I watched him play football, that was magical. Oh, that's so amazing. That was, uh, yeah. Two very wholesome experiences. <laughs> yes, remembering yeah. I came to medical school and I'm talking here about football. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it, it was a nice place, great place. Yeah, mm, I have very fond memories of Manchester. So from there, you obviously went on to become a colorectal surgeon. And you ended up down back down in London, not at the doors of Harrods this time. No, no, tried Still to keep West away London. from the place. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Yes, I was a senior lecturer in surgery, mm-hmm. 
at the then Royal Postgraduate Medical School, which subsequently became subsumed into Imperial College, mm, based okay. at Hammersmith Hospital. And then in the year 2000, I moved on to uh, an NH pure NHS practice away from academia mm. at Ealing Hospital in West London. Mm. And that's where I was working in 2000 onwards. In 2010, as we'll come to the story in a mm. minute, I was practicing in a private hospital called the Clementine Churchill Hospital in Harrow. Mm. Mm. And that's where the story that we're going to be talking about really all began. Mm. Mm. And can I just ask just generally, over that period of time, so from medical school through to the earlier stages of your training, was there ever any appreciation for the law and doctors? Um, or was there anything like in the news at the time that made you think, okay, this is something we need to think about and take seriously? Well, I'd never been taught anything about the law. It was obviously something that was there and mm. we had to obey it. I think the thing about doctors, all of us, is that we wake up in the morning, we want to do good. Mm. And we feel we always do good. And therefore, we're not really in the frame of mind of breaking the law. Yeah. So I think the law was something that was a long way away from everything that we did. But of course, the law is embroiled in our practice in ways that we don't really appreciate, mm. but are very intricate. Mm. Every time you put a hand on a patient, there is an implicit legal obligation between you and that patient that you're going to treat them well. And I think patients obviously expect to be treated in a legal, lawful way, and that's something that we respect. Every time you take a consent from a patient, especially now in the light of Montgomery, mm. which I'm sure you've all heard about, uh, the obligation that you now have to the patient is now embroiled also in law. And if you transgress in your taking a consent from a patient, you could be accused of battery, you could be accused of grievous bodily harm. When you operate on somebody in the operating theater and you put a knife on them and you hadn't taken a proper consent, mm. you could also be doing grievous bodily harm. When you see them on the wards, when you see them in outpatient clinics and so on, mm. there is a legal obligation between you and them. We don't recognize it, no. partly because I think we don't transgress often enough or we don't see people transgress often enough to see that side of things. But it is a very important part of everyday clinical practice for everyone, yeah. junior doctors as well as seniors. And I think it's so interesting that you're giving us this perspective, because for us, even when we started this podcast, our first case that we ever discussed was the case of Dr. Bawagaba. And when we looked at that case, I think for us, that was quite shocking to us because we see systemic failures happen all the time and they don't often end in a like a legal conviction or legal proceedings but we can see that how the team can impact and create that kind of scenario so I think it's interesting what you've just said about the individual the individual relationship between one doctor and one patient and um, yeah which we just haven't really appreciated until but also recently. as you correctly say there are systemic issues mm -hmm. we practice in a profession that is hugely underfunded. Mm. And the reason that we've got to be careful about the law is that when things go wrong, the law often 
tend to hold the doctor responsible irrespective of the system in which they've worked. You've mentioned the case of Hadiza Baragaba. Those who read about Hadiza Baragaba will know that Hadiza was working in a very stretched environment. Uh, she was doing the job of about three or four doctors. Mm. The IT system that was supposed to be helping her had broken down. And yet, in spite of all of that, she tried her best. Absolutely. Despite that, when things did go wrong, the systemic factors were all shoved to one side and she was held responsible. Mm -hmm. And I think the one thing that we're trying to get the law to recognize is that medicine is not practiced in a vacuum. Mm. It's not as if you're taking the patient away in your own front room and treating them. You're treating them in an environment where there should be adequate provisions, where there are other people mm. also looking after the patient, other doctors, other nurses, mm -hmm. technicians, etc. And when something does go wrong, I think it's important for the law to recognize that all of these systemic factors do come into play and not merely hold the one individual Accountable. responsible for a system that's hugely underfunded. Absolutely. Just like to say also that doctors are not trying to be above the law. We all want to operate within the law. Mm. But I think what the law has got to recognize that the system is considerably more complex than the uh, simple system that's often portrayed in television programs. Mm. You're touching on the fact that medical care is a collaborative system and the law is trying to find, in a case of a failure or an error, is trying to find intent, criminal intent, or malpractice or negligence. And it's very complicated if you're looking at a system. If a system's failing, then it's not easy to target one perpetrator or a single issue because it's so much more complex than that. Yes, I think let's just be clear. There are doctors very occasionally who want to do harm. Mm -hmm. We know the case of Harold mm, Shipman. Of course, exactly. And there have been other cases of doctors who have gone out of their way purely to cause harm. Mm. But the vast majority of doctors get up in the morning, want to do good, mm -hmm. and have no criminal intent, mm. and yet they can end up on the wrong side of the law. Yeah, and that's basically what we're here to talk about today, isn't it? Yes. So um, maybe, Mr. Sello, if you could sort of give us, um, for, for listeners of ours that may not be familiar with your case, if you could perhaps give them a quick overview and then we can sort of get into the real meat of what we're here to talk about today. Okay, it's all, as you say, chronicled in my memoir, uh -huh. Did He Save Lives? A Surgeon's Story. It all started in 2010 when I was doing a private clinic in uh, the Clementine Churchill Hospital. One of my colleagues knocked on my door and said, David, I've got a patient on whom I did a total knee replacement five days ago. He's got abdominal pain. Would you see him? And I said, yes. Is it okay to see him after I've finished my clinic? He said, yes. So I did go to see the patient. I uh, arranged a number of investigations. I operated on him ultimately. There were delays in performing that operation for reasons that I'll explain in a moment. In any case, the patient was hugely overwhelmed by his disease. This was a natural condition that had arisen, which even in the best circumstances in the best hospitals mm. 
carries significant mortality. He died, and I was held to blame for his death. I was investigated, firstly by the hospital, and then ultimately by the coroner, and then by the GMC, and then by the law. My trial was held at the Old Bailey. I was convicted of the patient's manslaughter, and I was sent to prison. I came out, and as you've said in the introduction, we mounted an appeal. That appeal was successful, mm -hmm. and it was overturned. I'd also been in front of the GMC on a number of occasions on the same charges. I was completely cleared of the charges, and here I am. So that's the uh, story in a nutshell. In, in a very, a very literal... Nutshell. Yeah, yes, very literally in a nutshell. Nutshell, yeah. Yeah. Um, so perhaps I think maybe a good place for us to start would be when there is a significant event in a hospital or a serious incident, SIs as we know them. Um, the process is generally that the there'll be an internal investigation initially. Um, and in your case, I understand that there was a report that was written and that was an external body that gave that report. Is that correct? Yes, I think only to first of all emphasise that we are probably the only profession that is so extensively investigated mm. following an incident. Mm. In other professions, the process is much shorter, much yeah. smoother perhaps, mm -hmm. and the consequence is not as grave. Mm -hmm. In medicine, there is a whole range of investigations that mm. happen when there's an untoward incident. Mm. Yes, it first kicked off by the hospital wanting to deflect blame for mm. a number of systemic issues that I'll talk about yeah. uh, later on in the podcast. But they wanted to hold somebody responsible for the patient's death other, other than themselves. So what they did was they um, hired an external company not quite sure how independent that external mm. uh, company was because, as I'll mention in a moment, the director of that company actually ultimately took a senior job in the hospital establishment. Oh, wow. mm. So whether he was entirely partial is something that I often talk about. He, that direct director of that inquiry company, also got a colorectal surgeon from a hospital in Burton-on-Trent. And again, one of the things that that surgeon did not declare is that he worked in a hospital where the mortality rate for elective colorectal surgery had been the highest in the country. One out of every six of their patients who they'd operated on electively had died following their operations. Mm. So here was somebody coming to investigate an incident who himself had not been working in an entirely blame-free environment. Mm -hmm. mm. And between the two of them, they produced a report that was very critical of me. Mm. Now, one of the things that we're going to be talking about uh, later on is the whole issue of what you call expert witnesses. Yeah the people who are asked to adjudicate Absolutely. when things go wrong. Mm. But they issued a very damning report, and that report was the first in a whole series of reports that was very critical of the way that I'd managed the patient, and that es escalated that case to a coroner's inquest, ultimately mm. to the GMC, 
And finally to the law. The law requires that when there is a serious incident, there should be two investigations. If there is somebody being held responsible or under suspicion mm -hmm. for that death, they should be investigated quite clearly. Mm. We accept that. But the hospital were also under obligation to investigate their own processes. Mm -hmm. And they did. This is what is known as the root cause analysis. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. And the idea behind the root cause analysis is for the hospital to also look at its own processes. Mm -hmm. Because as we say, uh, medicine is a complex uh, field. And when something goes wrong, we've, not, we've got to look at the whole thing in totality. Mm. The hospital's root cause analysis was actually carried out by one of their own quality managers. That quality manager produced an RCA, I've gone to call it because it, it's a little bit shorter than calling it mm -hmm. a root cause analysis, mm. uh, produced a root an RCA, which was very critical of the hospital's pr provisions. Mm -hmm. For example, there was no emergency theater, there was no emergency anesthetic rotor, etc. Uh, the intensive care unit was supposed to provide outreach care to people on the wards, and it didn't do all of that. And the RCA highlighted a large number of failings mm. of the hospital. Unfortunately, that root cause analysis was hidden from us during my investigations. Oh, wow. Mm. And uh, we didn't know of the existence of that document until much, much later when it was really too late. Mm. Uh, we found out about this document following a subject access analysis uh, request when I was doing my appeal. It mm. was only then that the uh, document surfaced. So had that document, as it should have been, Absolutely. been present mm. at the time mm -hmm. that these inquiries were taking place, mm. I think there would have been a fairer, more balanced, balanced. Um, assessment of exactly what happened. Mm. But the coroner saw the report that was critical of me, but mm -hmm. not the root cause analysis. Mm -hmm. The uh, GMC never saw the RCA. Mm. The criminal, the Crown Court never saw the RCA. So the judgment was all against me rather mm. than uh, the, the establishment itself. Mm -hmm. And what surprises me about that story as well is that it seems like all these different bodies didn't appreciate that there would be a hospital or systems-wide failing that's probably occurred alongside that. How comes that wasn't ever... Uh, do you know why that they never went down that route? Well, it's, it's quite possible in law for mm. one person to be held responsible for a crime, even though there were others uh, involved. Mm -hmm. But I think that medicine is much more complex yeah. than that. And I would also expect and the GMC uh, to be aware of those things. That's why I was yes, asking. Yes. Uh, ultimately, they did take uh, that into consideration. But during my trial, whenever there was any mention of any systems or any mm. body, mm. the judge would say, oh, no, it's David Selu that's on trial, not the mm. uh, hospital, etc., which is clearly wrong. Mm. That's now being fixed. Mm. And one of the recommendations that's being made to the law is that medicine is too complex, and therefore when these problems do occur, that systems should be adequately uh, taken into consideration. And sh in fact, the uh, there was Lord Mackay was a lord. He was in the House of Lords, was one of the people who actually 
initiated this law of gross negligence, mm. manslaughter. And yeah. he was very insistent that if a doctor is being held responsible for an incident, mm. he or she should be judged in the circumstances in which they found themselves rather than in isolation of yeah. those mm. circumstances. Mm. But for reasons unclear, this has never been the case. So, you know, um, we are where we are, but hopefully things will change. Mm. So when we're talking about expert witnesses being called to a case to provide um, what you assume is an impartial perspective on what would be expected of a doctor in a certain circumstance, mm. um, of course, we were saying that in your case, that that wasn't the case. The expert witness wasn't necessarily completely impartial no. um, and giving a, a like a fair judgment, no, well, no, a fair description, no, no, no. free mm. from judgment. Yeah. Mm. So, in are there any ways that, in your experience, that the law is expected to protect medical yeah. professionals? Like, how do you hold the expert witness to account now? Yeah, basically. Well, first, first of all, um, the word, the the expression "expert witness" is a bit, it's a bit of a misnomer. It almost sounds the, Hollywood. The, the word expert is wrong because these people were never trained. The, the, most of the people who gave evidence in my case had never given evidence in a civil or criminal court. Mm. So you can't really call yourself an expert mm. not ever having done the job. Mm. Yeah. They've not been trained to uh, provide expert witnesses. These are people that are just snatched at random or who hold themselves to be experts. Yes. Mm. Yeah. The other word that's a misnomer is witness. They are mm. the people who were never there when the events happened, and therefore the word witness is a bit of a, a, a misguided word. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So th they're, they're not expert witnesses. I just all, love how you do. Yeah. I was uh, my <coughs> mind just got give, shattered. They're giving yeah. opinions, and yeah. we can all give opinions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, these people have a bit of an inflated. View of themselves, mm. and all they're really trying to do is to mm. hold themselves up as being people who are in authority. Yeah. Mm. I mean, in my case, for example, one of the ex so called expert witnesses had actually retired from surgical practice mm. for some time. So, you know, this yeah. was a person who probably had been in surgery but now uh, retired wasn't really seeing the day-to-day -day problems. Yes, because the day-to-day -day problems have completely um, changed. Yeah. Mm. And yeah, what I so. think is also interesting is it seems like the other expert witness um, held you to a different standard to, that he has held himself or the hospital in which he worked in. <sighs> and particularly when I think, when you're talking about a case like this, like what the impression is, what would a reasonable doctor or reasonable surgeon do under the circumstances not what you would do not what or you not, would like not, not to do what the textbooks say because Absolutely. one of the one of the problems with medical practice is that it's often very easy to open a textbook and say oh on page 256 it says you've got to do this and that and so on mm. but takes absolutely no account of the circumstances in which you found themselves people. i mean i always give the example of for example the vaginal mesh Mm. It's a little digression, but it's an interesting story. When it first came out many, many years ago, it was probably one of the best devices that there was for the treatment of female urinary incontinence. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, a lot of women were benefited by the vaginal mesh. Mm -hmm. Now, many, many years down the line, we now know that it caused a significant number of women 
considerable harm. Mm. Now, if you judge the surgeons who did that operation mm. 20 years ago based on the information that was available to them, you can't really criticize them yeah. because mm. they did the best that there was at the time using the knowledge yeah. that they knew at the time. Mm. Absolutely. Unfortunately, um, one of the things that expert witnesses do tend to forget is that medicine does change over time. And therefore, if, as in, the case, if in my case, my trial was in 2013, the incident happened in 2010, mm. and a lot had changed in surgery between that time and 2013, and yet I was being held to the standards of 2013 based on things that had happened in 2010. Absolutely. So when you are judging somebody, you've mm. got to judge them in their environment in which they found themselves, mm. the take account mm -hmm. of all the strictures that they were subjected to at the time, and based on the knowledge that was available at the time. As you correctly say, how you judge another surgeon is not what you would do, or it's not what the textbooks say is ideal. Mm. It's what a reasonable body of surgeons would do given the facilities that they had at their disposal. So mm. it's an int interesting concept. It's, a, it's an important concept yeah. in law. But this is one that expert so-called witnesses do tend to forget sometimes. Mm. And this must have been an incredible, like traumatic experience for yourself and your family at the time. Can I ask, how did you initially process what was going on for you just on a personal level? Just to say, first of all, that there was a victim in all of this, and that was a patient. Mm. And we must not forget that mm. we are not the only people that suffer when things like this happened. Mm. There was a patient who died. There was a family at the end who wanted answers. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, as happened in my case, because the finger was pointed at the wrong person, the family never really got the answers that they wanted. So let's not forget that uh, mm. the most important victim in all of this is the patient and the family. Mm. But coming back to the issue of myself, of course, you know, I'd had what I believed was, was an unblemished career for f over 40 years. I'd, in my view, saved numerous lives, mm. which is why the title of my book, uh, because when I was judged and convicted and so on, the fact that I'd saved countless number of lives mm. was never taken into consideration mm. uh, when the judgment was passed on me. But it, it was a very traumatic event, not just for me, but also for my family. And I think they too are the people that are often forgotten in all of this mm. uh, because the events that took place were purely things that happened that they were due or judged to be either my actions or inactions nothing to do with my family and yet at mm. the end of it I lost my career I lost my salary uh, my children were in, in, med in, in, in university they were trying to forge a career uh, we had a mortgage we had uh, commitments that we had to uh, commit to etc mm. and mm. yet suddenly one day my salary was stopped so you can imagine the impact of that quite mm. apart of course from the fact that uh, you know I'd lost a patient and mm. the, that loss was entirely not my fault. Our circumstances were to show. Mm. Yeah. It's just an unbelievable thing. Like, it just, it's, it just blows my mind. But I found even more shocking was just the absolute lack of 
support that you talk about in the book mm. from places where you would expect that you would be able to get support for or someone going through or, this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I know you do talk about your colleagues being like per- like personally very supportive, but um, from organisations such as um, the BMA or the Royal Colleges, I know in your book you talk about not not getting much support at all. And um, is that something that's that's changed since? Have you had conversations with those organisations since? Yes, things are changing. First of all, when something like this happens, I think you'd expect a lot of support from your base organisations. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the base organisation that I was working at was really more of a business uh, than a medical establishment. I think they, they're there m- mainly to, to make money rather than uh, unfairly perhaps mm. uh, for me to say so, but I think making money was more their primary aim rather than yeah. looking mm. after patients. What they want to do is not to bring that business pod model into any disrepute. Sort of disrepute. But equally, when these things happen, there are lots of uh, consequences, psychological, logistic, financial and so on and we're looking at uh, other bodies that can help Uh, first of all the psychological consequences are enormous we know that one doctor kills themselves every three weeks on average in Mm. the United Kingdom Mm. while they are under investigation by the GMC and these are often people who are young Mm. who've got families, who've mm. got children uh, attending schools, etc. Mm. And the psychological consequences are huge. One mm. of the things that I think every doctor ought to do is to seek psychological help at the very first opportunity. Yeah. But I think on a practical level, what you want to do is to get away from your own hospital and go to somewhere where you can get that help uh, anonymously, perhaps, mm. Mm. Uh, maybe not anonymously, but where you can get it confidentially, yeah, free yeah. of judgment, without mm-hmm. uh, having the rest of your colleagues know about it. And yeah. one of the uh, organisations that we were looking at, that I was looking at, was, for example, the uh, the BMA that mm. I'd been a staunch supporter of uh, since I was a medical student, mm. uh, and also, also I was also fellow of two royal colleges, the College of Surgeons of England. Mm-hmm. and the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh. I sought help from all of these bodies, and unfortunately, I got no help. Uh, I was in a meeting with the presidents of the Colleges of Surgeons mm-hmm. of England and of Glasgow, and this issue came up. They were very apologetic. It's, mm. a, it's, it's an issue that they're now very seriously considering mm. uh, taking on board and changing. Mm. But, you know, these are bodies, uh, I mean, we are trained, as you know, to be non-judgmental. Uh, we, as surgeons, for example, will treat people with vascular disease who've been smokers. Mm. Uh, we treat people whose lifestyles lead directly to their diseases yeah. without any ju- judgment. Mm-hmm. And yet, unfortunately, when one of their own colleagues gets into trouble, they're often very judgmental. Ah, it was his fault. Mm. Uh, he should have done A, B, C, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. He didn't follow the rules, etc., without even knowing the, the details of exactly what happened. So mm-hmm. um, it's that judgmental attitude that I think uh, we really need to get away from. Mm-hmm. But yes, these establishments are now uh, coming on board in mm-hmm. that regard. 
And I think we're so fortunate to be at the point in our careers where, where we've come through after these cases have unfortunately happened to people like mm. you. Um, and now maybe there is a bit more scrutiny in terms of um, before things even get to trial. What I'm struggling to understand is why these institutions weren't there to support you, why they weren't there to like hear what you were saying um, and not judge you just because the media has judged you. Well, first of all, as I say, the institution where this happened was a private hospital. And understandably, perhaps uh, from their point of view, uh, they wanted the deflection to be away from them and the gun to be pointed at somebody else. Mm -hmm. But I think equally, um, the NHS hospitals that have no financial interest in that way Mm -hmm. should also be more supportive. Absolutely. And I think one of the recommendations that's being made, that's been made following the recent inquiries into all of these incidents is that more support should be provided for doctors who, Mm -hmm. and it's not just doctors of course, we've got to be aware that there are other healthcare colleagues colleagues who come uh, under the same sort of scrutiny that one of the uh, people who was convicted of uh, manslaughter, for example, was a nurse in Leicester at the same time as Hadiza Bahagaba. Mm. Mm. And they too have their own regulatory bodies that equally hold them to uh, account when these things go wrong. Uh, but I think that uh, the establishment must really begin to take account of the fact that uh, there are systemic issues that must be corrected, first of all, and should mm. also be taken into account. But going Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Can these incidents occur? I think what Amelie was trying to get at was actually so, of course, with hospitals and private ins- institutions, we understand they may have other reasons for wanting to try and point the finger. But when we're talking about organizations such as um, the BMA or, or the Royal well, colleges. colleges, of course, they're there to support their doctors. So, where was the gap in terms of them not wanting to be supportive? yourself when you'd been a member with them for so long and just to follow on from that question when I think about like the GMC from I say well it's still a 
it's still mm. very much relevant in their practices now. So what I'm thinking, let me say my words, <laughs> <laughs> is with the GMC investigations, we all know that they have been biased. It's a like a historically racist institution. Absolutely. And that's actually a lot of the institutions in the UK, including the police. We can look at the Stephen Lawrence cases and understand, mm. okay, the numbers of people that were... Um, even reporting to the GMC is just disproportionate when you're thinking yeah. about people who are black or um, from another minority ethnic group. Yeah, I think just to uh, take you on that point, the GMC deny that there is any racism in the way that they investigate their cases. Oh, I thought now, there was not, was there not a report? In no, 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 so th this th is th recent. Let's, let's just be very careful <laughs> about that report. What that report was uh, put up to do was to look at why there is a disproportionate number of black and ethnic minority practitioners referred to the GMC. What that committee was not uh, allowed to do mm. was to look at whether when those cases got to the GMC, there was any racial bias in the way that the decisions were made from that point on. Okay, okay. I see. So I see. there is no doubt about the fact yeah. that the majority uh, doctors who get referred to the GMC are from black and ethnic minority, far disproportionate. Okay. The number of doctors, for example, in uh, ethnic doctors mm. in, the, in, in healthcare is between 20 to 30 percent. Mm -hmm. Whereas the number of people who get referred to the GMC is about, the proportion is more than 90 percent. That there's no question about. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, what that committee was not allowed to do was to then determine whether from that point at which they got to the GMC, mm. there was any racial bias in the way that the GMC made its decisions. Now, the GMC argues that when doctors get to that point, there is no disproportionality. There are people who, of course, argue that there is disproportionality. Mm. That, for example, if you have an ethnic minority mm. person commit a certain misdemeanor as compared to a white person, mm. that the uh, the sanctions that are imposed are different. They're more, they're more, uh, the, the stiffer and so on Harsh to the ethnic yeah. minority mm -hmm. person. But the GMC denies that, and unfortunately, that committee didn't go that far down the line to really uh, look at that, whether there was disproportionality there. What is not in doubt is that the number of uh, ethnic minority mm. people referred to the GMC is way, way disproportionate. No question about that. Mm. And as you say, also it's the same in, in, in the law. And it's the same also for other uh, regulators. Of course, of course. That regulate regulate mm. medicine mm. And, and nursing, etc. Actually, it's quite a crucial question. So it's a shame that he didn't pursue that further to find out if there is bias within the GMC. But anyways, that's a question for another day, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's a whole another episode. That is a whole another <laughs> question. Um, so, Mr. Sellu, if you see for our listeners, we've got um, a predominantly like junior doctor listening group. Yes. Um, so we're kind of often maybe slightly protected in the sense that when we're practising... Um, there's always a responsible clinician who is obviously always the consultant. Yep. So you're f you're working under the consultant's instructions. So in the case of um, SIs or errors, it often filters back up to the consultant. 
Um, what's your impression on how the criminalization of medical error, like how will that filter down to junior doctors? Should we be scared? Should we be um, sort of con- taking things into consideration or is it something that's kind of still from a slightly higher up level, more affecting the consultant group? Well, I don't want people to be scared of practicing <laughs> medicine. I think uh, scare is perhaps not really the right word. No. Let's, we, we all go out, we want to do good. Yeah. Let's continue to do good. What we've got to be aware of, however, is that we are going to be held uh, for our own actions. Uh, there is a misconception, perhaps, that if you're a junior doctor and you make a mistake, your consultant is going to be held responsible for that. No. Mm. Uh, yes, uh, depending on how your consultant or your registrar supervised you, if you're an FY1 or an FY2, uh, they too would carry responsibility, but you are going to be held responsible mm-hmm. for your own actions based on your level of knowledge. Obviously, the law or the regulator is not going to judge you as against the the competence of a registrar. If you're mm, an yeah. FY1, mm. for example, you're not expected to be acting like a registrar, mm. but you should be responsible to act like a competent FY1. If you mm. transgress uh, against those sorts of rules, mm-hmm. yes, you will be held responsible. So let's not have the misconception that somehow if something goes wrong, mm-hmm. your registrar or your consultant is the one that's going to be held responsible. Yes, they can be held responsible if they haven't supervised you mm-hmm. adequately. So you know, if I give you a scalpel and you s- I say to you, not having done an appendicectomy before, go and take out that appendix <laughs> and mm. you go and do it badly, then of course, I would have failed in uh, mm. my responsibility to you. Mm. But equally, you will be held responsible and that for your own actions as judged against what you should reasonably know as an FY1 mm. or FY2 mm-hmm. or whatever your uh, level of training. So you do have uh, responsibility mm. for your own actions. I think something else that we should definitely touch on is defensive practice. Yes. With the increasing number of um, convictions or charges being brought against doctors in, and I would say in, in perhaps in recent days, um, have you noticed in your own practice that people are changing in the way that they're practicing medicine? And how does that negatively impact patients? Well, let's just be clear, first of all, about what we mean by defensive, def- defensive practice. practice. Mm. Defensive practice is the practice that we do in order primarily to protect ourselves and to cover our own bags. Mm-hmm. If Let me give you an example. If you're a GP sitting in a surgery and a, a child comes along who's got a bit of a cough, slight temperature, you say to yourself, well, I think it's a viral infection. Mm. Uh, I should really reassure the parents to go away, give the child some paracetamol and plenty of water etc in in somebody who's practicing defensively what they would do would be to prescribe antibiotics Mm -hmm. to that child because they know that in the majority it's going to be a viral infection Mm -hmm. but occasionally it may turn out to be a bacterial infection Mm -hmm. that should have been treated with antibiotics now what we're doing there is giving perhaps 20 children antibiotics Mm -hmm. when perhaps only one should have been given antibiotics so we don't miss that one patient uh, Mm -hmm. who may turn out to have a bacterial infection Mm -hmm. now what of course what that does is uh, we know what happens when we inappropriately prescribe antibiotics Mm -hmm. Mm. 
Another example is... And even on from that, of course, mm. um, we can talk about antibiotic resistance, yeah. but also mm. that's... And that's why I wanted to pick you up on it. I'm happy he picked you up on the mm. statement defensive practice. Yeah. It sh- the defensive practice should only... It only tends to really be a symptom of someone trying to cover their own back. Mm. So now if we actually go back to what clinical medicine is meant to do and how we're meant to like reassure our patients mm. and um, educate them, yeah, educate them, particularly these a, a parent, because I work in pediatrics mainly. Mm. Mm. So with, a, mm. with parents, so many of them will be anxious. Mm. They're so scared that their child has tonsillitis or yeah. is bacterial. Yeah. Yeah. But actually you as a doctor with your own clinical information, you can now empower them and educate them. So I think you tend to lose all of those like psychosocial important mm. things as well mm. when your focus now becomes, okay, I yes, must cover I my own back. What you've got to bear in mind though is th- talking from the point of view of the clinician is yeah. occasionally one of those cases will turn out to be a tonsillitis yes, yes. Yeah. that you'd reassured and sent home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's that sort of case that's going to be in the press. Yes, uh, This child was seen by X number of doctors uh, they failed to diagnose the tonsillitis. They reassured the mother that the child had a viral infection and therefore mm-hmm. said, go away and everything's going to be fine. This is what doctors are fearing. Mm. I mean, another example... But then I suppose the, the addendum to that as well is maybe because we also are aware of cases similar to yours mm. um, is that we will now be aware that we need to safety net them or to provide like certain information. If so-and-so happens, this is what you need to do. Well, uh, think of the there was that there was mm. that case of the uh, uh, an optometrist called Honey Rose, mm. who what a name sounds yeah. like yeah. a TV uh, character. She, again, she was an Indian. <laughs> she was an Indian uh, optom- optometrist practicing okay. in a high street chemist when oh, a child that. came in and had an eye examination, mm-hmm. and she missed papilledema in that child Mm -hmm. and sometime much later that child uh, died from a brain Mm tumour and when people looked back they found that the child actually had papilledema which should have been uh, picked up on that original optometry Mm -hmm. test. Now what do you say what do you say to Mm. parents like that? Mm. Uh, That that optometrist incidentally Mm. was convicted of uh, Mm. the manslaughter of that child but that conviction was ultimately overturned Mm. I think quite sensibly Mm. but I think it's that kind of scenario that doctors are worried about that yes you can reassure the mother I tell them if this happens and that happens come back but I think uh, when all of this happens that Mm. sort of information gets forgotten in the whole process So I think that doctors are very aware of this. I mean, the other example I was going to give of um, defensive practice mm. was if you have a thousand patients with headaches, mm-hmm. probably on average one of them will have a brain tumor. Yeah. Now the others will not have a brain tumor, maybe because they've not been drinking enough, they've, or maybe they've been drinking yeah, too other much, causes, yeah. or they've got migraine, or they've got some functional headache, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, what a defensive practitioner will do is to send every single one of those thousand people to have CT scans of Mm. their brains Mm. so as not to miss that one patient who might have a brain tumor. Now, what does that do? Uh, All of those people who are having brain scans are now going to be very anxious because the doctor thinks I may have something wrong in my brain. 
And look at the anxiety that's going to be generated in the time that they're going to be uh, going through that process. Mm. And of course, one of the other things that will happen is that brain scan may pick up something totally benign that would never have come to light in the lifetime of that patient. And there will now be more investigations carried out Absolutely. for that lesion, mm. creating more anxiety mm -hmm. with, with blocking brain scans for other people who really richly deserve that investigation mm -hmm. and so on. So defensive practice is bad medicine for mm -hmm. patients. I think it's so clear that you talk about like learning that we can do from all these kind of events. Um, what sort of things have you shared with people in terms of how do we now like move towards like a, a duty of candor rather than like a blame culture? Well, I think the duty of candor is really primary in medicine. Are patients expected? Uh, one of the things that uh, we should talk about is what uh, patients and parents expect when mm. they come to medicine. I think uh, patients deserve to be treated correctly yeah. uh, with the right sort of knowledge, etc. And they obviously deserve to be treated with considerable respect. This mm -hmm. is what we're all here for. When things go wrong, patients want primarily three things out of four. The first is for us to put up our hands and say, sorry, we got it wrong as practitioners. Mm -hmm. And to mean that, not merely to say it, because mm. that's what's expected of yeah. us. The second thing that patients and parents want us to do is to give them an adequate explanation as to why whatever went wrong went wrong, because they deserve that. Mm if they're going to put any sort of closure to, for example, somebody who's died, I think mm -hmm. they want to understand exactly what it was that happened to their loved one. Yeah. The third thing that patients want is to be reassured that if we've made a mistake, that we are going to learn from that mistake so that it doesn't happen to other patients in the future. Mm -hmm. Now, we often have this misconception that what people want is compensation. Yes, of course, people deserve compensation mm. if they should be compensated. I mean, if you've got a taxi driver uh, who is paralyzed following a spinal operation that's gone wrong and they now yeah, can't do their job, yeah. they've got bills to pay, etc. Mm. I think they deserve to be compensated. But primarily, what patients want are those three things. Mm -hmm. It's when we don't offer those three things that people feel that the only way they're going to get redress is to seek compensation. Yeah, but absolutely. that is really the last thing that's often mm -hmm. on patients' minds when mm. these things happen. So in terms of the duty of candor... And I think just to add on from what you're yeah, saying, mm. it's important for us to be aware that we can just, even if we don't have the answers there and then, it's important for us to show that we're trying to get those answers yes, um, and just yes, to keep yes. them very involved in the conversation because you can be doing certain actions yeah, but mm. unfortunately if what you've said to them hasn't been okay yes, that's what we're working on at the it moment can be confrontational absolutely the problem mm. with the duty of candor from the point of view okay. of doctors is this that mm. doctors are worried that if you put up your hands now and you say oh yes i did that i take responsibility for mm. that and there is then subsequently case, either civil or criminal, mm. what you've said today is going to be held against you yeah. in a court of law. Okay. Absolutely. And this, this, this clearly happened in my case. Yeah. Mm. I was very candid in all the interviews that I gave, mm. and every single thing that I said was written down 
and it was looked at in very minute detail during mm. my uh, the criminal investigation. Ah, he said this, he said this, I should have done this, I <sighs> didn't do that, and so on. And I think this is obviously bad for learning because what it does do is it discourages doctors and practitioners from being candid from the word go because they know uh, or they suspect that if they are candid, any words of candor that they express mm -hmm. now are going to come to haunt them because mm. those words are going to be forensically examined yeah. in a court of law and held against them. That's obviously bad for candor. Yeah, and that's a crucial issue when duty of candor is such a core tenet of medicine and of building a doctor-patient relationship. Like, your patient trusts that you are truthful and that you are reliable and that you are honest. And, and that's the only way we're going to learn in future mm -hmm. because Absolutely. if we either to ourselves or to our colleagues say, look, I did that wrong, mm. uh, that's what I should have done in future, this is the way we should be doing it, Yeah. then it means that we're learning from our mistakes. And we're progressing and, and, and medicine we're, is progressing. What we're not doing is by not having that duty of that, that candor, mm. uh, we are deluding ourselves that we, we're doing the right thing for our patients and we are avoiding that learning opportunity that mm. really comes out of candor, which is obviously very bad for medicine. So given that the nature of the law kind of in some way erodes sort of core tenets for us, such as duty of candor, do you think that doctors should then be judged um, in the in the eyes of the law in the way that the law judges most professions or most members of the population? Well, first of all, just to say that uh, we're all we're all we're all citizens mm. and we don't want to be held above, above the law. No. But what we do want the law to recognize is that the environment in which we practice is a very difficult one. Mm -hmm. That medicine is not the kind of uh, discipline that is perceived, that the perception of medicine as a kind of a magical uh, discipline uh, should be dispelled. Mm, yeah, uh, unfortunately, uh, in my case, uh, there was the perception given to the jury that had he done this, had he given antibiotics at mm, this moment mm. in time, that patient would have been up and walking out of the hospital yeah. at such and such a time. Of course, yeah. we know that antibiotics don't work in that sort of yeah. way. I mean, they're amazing, but it's no magic wand. They're not, yeah. they're not magical, and they can cause harm, too, mm. yeah. quite apart from the good that they, 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 they do do. But um, I think in terms of uh, the, the perception that medicine is a kind of a magical field, that perception should really be uh, taken away from mm. the profession. It's, it's a fallible profession mm -hmm. mm. and things can go wrong and things will go wrong. What they do in other professions, and we often use aviation as perhaps one of the models yeah. now. This is all we talk about. Obviously, <laughs> flying yeah. people from A to B is not the same as treating them uh, in a hospital no, when they no. come in ill. Mm -hmm. And I think we've got to we've got we've got to be careful not to equate equation yeah, to, to medicine. Mm -hmm. yeah. Nevertheless, there are things that they've done in aviation which are commendable. Mm. What they do do is to encourage people to hold up their hands when things have gone wrong, mm -hmm. and say, "Look, I should have done X, Y, Z, but this is what I did. Let's make it clear to other people in my circumstance." that this is potentially something that can go wrong so that we can all learn from it. Yeah. Or if something's gone wrong and we didn't mean to do wrong, uh, 
hold up our hands and say we this is what we did wrong so that everybody can learn from it. This is yeah. how aviation mm -hmm. has managed uh, to make flying uh, one of the safest forms of, of transportation. Absolutely. And I think that's su such a testament to your story as well, because actually what may have been easier for you to do is to have held some of the truths back or put someone, like, shove someone else under the bus. And I think it's almost, when I think of your story, I always think, oh, what could you have done? What could have been changed? But actually, it sounds like it was unavoidable yep. what you could have done to respond to this case. Well, yeah. let's, let's, just, let's just be clear. First of all, I went to prison uh, based on what I was alleged to have done wrong. Yes. Mm. And that's what in, I'm saying. In, in, as a, in, a, in a criminal court. Mm. Now, the GMC and the Medical Practitioners Tribunal Service, which is a civil court, mm. but in my view, the people who are there were more enlightened. Yeah. What they did do was to look at this case in its totality, yes. look at all the system provisions or lacks of provisions or s systemic uh, facilities, mm. and they put all that into the mix, and they looked at this case absolutely forensically and cleared me of every mm, single absolutely. of those allegations that had been mm -hmm. uh, that I'd been found to be guilty of in a criminal court. So um, I think the, the message is that when things go wrong, uh, people should be judged in the environment in which they found themselves. Rather Absolutely. Rather than but what I'm saying, even listening to our, our listeners are primarily doctors. Mm. And I think it's an encouraging note. And that's what I'm trying to say is it's encouraging to know that you can have uh, integrity. Mm. And even if things do fall fall away and things don't seem like they're going right the fact that you were so honest and had the candor throughout the whole journey yeah, even absolutely. though it was long and it was difficult that's what exonerated you in the well, end that candor certainly helped because that's, mm. that's what i mm. did express yeah. uh, <laughs> during my entire journey yeah. yeah but the uh mpts the medical practitioners tribunal service uh, where I appeared ultimately uh, judged this mm. very fairly mm. and they found me completely blameless in all yeah. of this, in the whole process. And if you don't mind me asking, do you mind just telling us a little bit about your son who also trained in medicine? Yes, uh, James was 24 years of age at the time. Mm. He also was a Manchester graduate and he'd done an intercalated master's degree in medical research in Manchester and then finished his uh, MB, CHB, all of which he passed. Mm. But at the time that he was doing his, his exam, he was coming to the Old Bailey to my trial, then going back to Manchester, reading for his finals, and ultimately he passed. And he came up, applied for his FY1, and he was given jobs in North Manchester uh, General Hospital. Mm. But before he took the job, he came home one day and he said to me and my wife, Mom, Dad, I don't want to continue in medicine at all anymore. Mm. So we said to him, James, you've spent a quarter of your life as a 24-year-old reading to medicine and you've mm. got very good degrees he got his um, MRes with commendation you've spent a quarter of your entire life or, or you've spent your entire adult life mm. training mm. to be a doctor mm. you've got something like an 80,000 pound 
student loan on your head. You don't have to remind us. And uh, you want to give all this up. Mm. Why? He said, first of all, I'd been through the same racism that you've been through, mm. and I can now see mm. the harmful effects of racism mm. in medicine. Mm. But more than that, on a personal level, when we were growing up, when it was our nativity plays, when it was our sports days, when it was our parents' teachers' evenings, you, Dad, were never there because you were busy providing care to your NHS patients. You were either stuck in theatre or mm. you were in your hospital providing exemplary care mm. to your patients. And yet, on account of a single incident in a 40-year career in which you'd saved countless lives, mm. something goes wrong. And it wasn't even your fault. I think even <laughs> he had picked on the fact that mm. the trial that I'd undergone had been completely unfair. Even on a, just on account of that one incident, which wasn't your fault, this is the humiliation that you suffer. Mm. If that is what medicine is all about, I give up. Yeah. And James never went back into medicine. Mm. Now, James uh, you know, would have probably made a very good doctor because mm. he's, he's, he's a very bright chap. He's very committed to medicine. Mm. And the sad news about that is that this is the kind of message that we're passing on a, to those youngsters who want to go into medicine. Mm. And unfortunately, even those uh, practitioners, young practi practitioners in medicine are yeah. uh, getting this wrong message from us that medicine is somehow a very toxic uh, profession to be in. Mm. And even older practitioners who are coming to retirement are now retiring earlier because there are lots of other reasons why people are retiring early to do with pensions mm, and, mm. And, yeah, and yeah. so on. But I think throw into that the toxicity that we've created in medicine, I think the first thing they want to say is, I want out. Absolutely, mm. yeah. And there are lots of people dropping out of medicine at various levels mm -hmm. because of these wrong messages that we're passing on to them, which is very sad mm -hmm. because I think that, th as we know, there is a manpower crisis in medicine yeah. Yeah. and the message that we're sending out to all of those people is really very wrong mm -hmm. and like you said it's been a 40, 40 year career span for you you've done so much for patients and mm. um, even when <laughs> you're also juggling b being a father as well mm -hmm. um yeah I'm well no yes i mean during my trial mm. uh there was this exchange which is where the title of my book comes okay. from Did He Ooh. Save Lives? There was an exchange between my defense barrister and one of the anesthetists that I'd worked with for nearly 20 years. Mm. And my prosecuting, my defense barrister rather, wanted to find out from this doctor who knew me very well just what my practice had been like. And the exchange went something like this. What sort of a doctor is David Celeron? Which he then would say, oh, he was a very good doctor. If anything ever happened in our intensive care unit, he was the one that everybody would go to and mm. ask for help, etc. Did he save lives? And the answer was an emphatic yes. Yeah. Mm. I thought that was a very good um title to put on my book and Absolutely. that's the reason now when i was sentenced to prison uh i just wanted 
at that point to remind my the people who were judging me that I had saved countless lives mm. uh, and yet in spite of one incident incident which I mm. didn't consider to be my fault uh, I was being sent to prison that was very unfair Mrs Sully so um, would you be able to read for us a small excerpt from your book did he save lives that you've spoken about yeah so Suba, yeah. Suba called me and I was like are you sure you want him to read that and then she yeah. was like Honestly, this hurt my heart. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I was heartbroken the whole time, but this in particular, I think, really struck a chord with me. Um, and also the story you shared about how you got the title of your book as well, because, you know, you talk, it, that's the intentionality with medicine is, is so important. It's what drives us, right? Like you said, yes. it's a difficult mm -hmm. career. You make a lot of sacrifices, yeah. but what drives you is, is what you're trying you to achieve. Mm. So this excerpt really struck a chord with me. All right, the context of this excerpt is something like this. When I was finally declared guilty of manslaughter, the judge read his sentencing remark, remarks, and the last words were, David Selu, I sentence you to two and a half years in prison for killing Mr. A. Now, the, if you read the whole narrative and if you know the outcome, mm. of course, I didn't kill Mr. A. But that's what I was uh, judged and convicted to have done. Mm. I wanted to remind the judge, or rather what the judge didn't do, was to remind the jury and all the listeners that this patient, Mr. A, had a disease which kills a significant number of people who have it, that Mr. A had other comorbidities, mm. such as cirrhosis of his liver, which negatively impact on survival from major surgery, mm -hmm. that Mr. A had his operation five days after he'd had a previous operation. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like running two marathons back to back without having time to recover from one that there were systemic failings. And when I wanted to get him into theater, there was no available theater that was staffed. When I wanted to operate on him, there was no anesthetist mm. to help me to operate on him. Mm -hmm. And yet, in spite of all of these, the judge said, I'm sentencing you to two and a half years in prison for killing Mr. A. Mm. And that's where the excerpt comes from. I could not get the word killing out of my mind. Killing conjured up visions of me administering a lethal cocktail of drugs or using a scalpel to de decapitate my patient. It filled me with confusion. I had entered medicine, a profession to save lives. And like every practitioner, I had not always succeeded in doing so. Some deaths cannot be prevented. Thanks so much for um, sharing so much with us today, Mr. Sully. Mm -hmm. um, Do you know what's so funny when I think about all of this? We've always had a list of dream guests, Mr. Sully, and you're on that list of dream guests. And I'm mm -hmm. telling you, that's only really five people. So thank you so much for coming today. Mm -hmm. It was an amazing story to hear. Amazing mm -hmm. because you kept your integrity throughout and you have so much reflection and positive reflection um, coming out of the other end. 
and that doesn't discount all the trauma and difficulties that you and your family mm. and also the patient and their family went through but it's just great to hear positive well, voices yes, from our just, seniors just to say finally that mm. uh, I'm back practicing medicine mm. in spite of uh, or surgery in spite yeah. of everything that's mm. happened for two reasons primarily uh, it's a profession that I enjoy doing and I still very proud to be helping people now some people say you're absolutely mad <laughs> and I, 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 agree, I agree with them <laughs> I, for everything, I agree that, with for them everything well. that I've been through yeah, and at wow. my stage I think I should have given up but I'm, I'm doing it because yeah. it's a profession I enjoy but also I'm, I'm doing voluntary work in Sierra Leone mm. and the only way I, I'll be allowed to do vol voluntary work in Sierra Leone is to stay on the medical register mm -hmm. in the UK mm -hmm. and to maintain uh, my place on the med medical register I've got to be in practice now mm -hmm. I'm not really mm -hmm. doing a lot of work uh, but I, I am I am doing some work uh, to uh, keep my name on the medical register so that I can mm -hmm. do voluntary work uh, back in Sierra Leone uh, but also uh, there's obviously a lot that we've not covered in this podcast yeah. that I've chronicled very uh, in great yes. detail <laughs> in my yeah. book, Did He Save Lives? A Surgeon's Story. Uh -huh. It's only £10. It's available on, uh, in, uh, on Amazon. So do go and, and Kindle read it. as Sibo's reading. It, it, yeah, it really yeah. <laughs> is important. And leave your reviews on Amazon. We will, yes, absolutely. It's an excellent read. I do I think, recommend. Um, there are lots and lots of messages in there, and yep. particularly for junior doctors. What I don't want to do is to scare you from medicine. <laughs> you know, no, my, my own no. son decided not to, not to carry on in medicine. But it, it's a wonderful profession, and uh, it's one that I would encourage people to go into. And yep. Those who are there do carry on. It's a noble profession. Uh, in spite of all the people out there who are judging you, do your best and <laughs> give it your very best. You are helping mankind. Yes, it's a Ooh. great, it's a great profession. And that was a and, and thank you for having me on this podcast. No, no you're no, very welcome. So excited. Very Thanks privileged for joining us. To have been given the opportunity to to, to, to talk to you. No, you. absolutely. And we've had so many great takeaways, um, both on personal and professional levels. Absolutely. So don't forget to buy. Did he save lives? by Mr. David Selly. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank All right, you. bye. Thanks very much. Bye, 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 bye. Catch us over on www.afterthelettersdotcom or forward slash after the letters on every social media network. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.